Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to the Ake Woman podcast where we speak with women of the diaspora who've defied odds to pursue their chosen fields and excel. On a side note, we recorded this interview in 2020. Moving countries and starting afresh or representing a minority community is never easy. But these stories of hope, determination and focus are inspirational. Our guest today is award-winning freelance writer Bijal Trivedi. A scientist by training, Bijal also loves to write and decided to combine both her passions to become a science journalist, specializing in medicine and health. Born in the UK, she spent her early years in Australia before moving to the US in the 80s. To go to Red Hot Chili Peppers, she's really been around the world. Her academic trajectory took her from Oberlin to UCLA and then NYU. But even more exciting are the places she's visited on work. I'm not sure how appealing a vomit comet sounds, but Bijal blasted off in one along with space tourism entrepreneurs in Moscow's Tar City. From the vaults of the Metropolitan Museum in New York to the plains of Serengeti, there is nothing Trivedi is not willing to tackle. Her articles have been published in a plethora of reputed science journals such as Discover, Scientific American, National Geographic and Nature. Since this interview, Bijal has moved from being the science and technology editor for the conversation to becoming the senior editor science at National Geographic. And drum roll, her first book, Breath from Salt on cystic fibrosis, was listed by Bill Gates as one of his top 5 picks for 2020. Trivedi lives in Washington DC with her husband and two children. Let's hear more about life experiments and research challenges from this science journalist. Hi Bijal, welcome to our podcast. Hi, nice to be here and thank you for inviting me. England, Australia and the States have their own peculiarities and as a South Asian, you have other challenges. How do you identify with any or all these cultures? I'm an Indian at heart and in my stomach so I guess <laughs> food and culture wise I relate to Indians. I've grown up in the UK and Australia and America. My professional sensibilities are very westernized. Were there many other women in your field? How organic was your decision? I had always had a passion for writing even back through elementary school in Australia. My first piece was published when I was in 7th grade. I'd always kept up the writing, but I had never anticipated doing anything other than science. My first love was astronomy in Australia and that's what I was very passionate about. I moved to chemistry and biochemistry in college. It was only 
once I had completed a master's degree, I decided that rather than just do science, I would do science journalism. Do you do fiction writing or is it mainly science writing? I exclusively do narrative nonfiction. So hopefully it reads somewhat like fiction, but it's uh, 100% scientifically and journalistically accurate. How did writing and science come together in your head? My dad's a professor and my mom's a librarian. So I was in a very academic setting. Science has just always fascinated me. In Australia, you're in the bush, you're in nature, and the natural world plays a, a big part. The first thing that caught my attention, I'm going to date myself by saying this, the Voyager spacecraft was going past Jupiter and then Saturn. And the pictures that came back from those missions were coming to a radio telescope that was quite close to where I lived in Canberra. I was hearing all about that firsthand. The pictures were just captivating, really, really, really amazing. And so astronomy was just something that caught my eye first. There was observatories on a local mountain, and my dad used to take me there once a month at night so that we could do real space stuff. Science was a natural thing in my blood. I never lost my love for writing and reading, and I did well in English classes in college. It was inevitable that they eventually merged. How did astronomy move to biochemistry and molecular biology? Was it a natural progression? It was just a matter of exposure. As a nine-year-old to a 12-year-old, you don't have access to biology labs and chemistry labs. It was really while I was at Oberlin College that I just got amazed and captured by molecular biology and biochemistry. I had fantastic professors there. Getting into a cell and figuring how the DNA and the genes work and how genes turn on and off, which lead us to either health or disease, it was completely fascinating. To this day, I remain utterly captivated by the field. But I wasn't as keen on staying in the lab. I love to tell stories. And what could be cooler than telling stories about what's happening inside the body, inside cells, as molecules are floating around the cell and doing things? It was just a matter of getting exposed to biology for me to really fall in love with it. At that fork in the road, I probably would have pursued human genetics because that's where the science was really exploding the Genome Project was midway through. If people were hunting genes the way you would hunt a criminal, genetic forms of disease and complex diseases fascinate me most. Was it difficult as a South Asian to make a mark or did you think it was easier because you stood out? It's no secret that the world of publishing, at least when I started in it 20 years ago, was more Caucasian and a lot more male. I wouldn't say it was easy. But perhaps because I veered to what were then perceived as more masculine topics, hardcore science, I was able to get my foot in the door. It wasn't easy being a woman or a South Asian woman in this field. I think it's opening up a bit more now, but it's always been challenging. You tried your hand at teaching too, didn't you? I taught as an adjunct at NYU for a little while within months of having my second baby. That was actually really fun. I was given the opportunity to teach in the science and health and environmental reporting program. I did that for about five years and returned to full-time freelancing. I was the editor of the NIH director's blog. 
Do you ever think you'll get back to teaching? I would like to do it along with everything else. I really enjoy editing scholars, which is what I do for my job at The Conversation. I'm a science and technology editor there. I work with professors around the U.S. to create articles that the lay public can understand. And I really enjoy that. I wouldn't give that up. I already am thinking about a couple of other books, so I'm not going to give that up. So if there's time to teach, I would love to. (laughs) (laughs) How do you choose a topic? Is it an assignment or does it just pop into your head? It's always been something that popped into my head because I have such a heavy science background. When news comes in, either breaking news or say the New England Journal of Medicine or the journal Science, I can see the popular version of that dense scientific story. I will suggest that to an editor or occasionally editors will come to me and say, can you write something on X? More often, I'll get an idea and pitch them to an editor and say, I think these threads would make a compelling story. Can you give us an example of how something in a magazine became a long-form story for you? What are some of the fun assignments that you've done while doing this? An editor at Discover Magazine said to me, there's a new drug out and it's called Kaleidico for this rare fatal genetic disease called cystic fibrosis. Why don't you look into the backstory and, and write an article about it? It just sounded very straightforward. There's a terrible disease. You've got a new drug that's going to help kids. And then I started reporting. All these interactions started coming into my world, meeting patients, meeting parents who told me about what they had gone through with their children, and then talking to scientists who were so committed to this cause that they were crying during the interviews. I had never experienced anything like that through any of my reporting. For other stories that I've done, I might read something in a scientific journal. For example, a long time ago, I read a story about a new approach to trying to stop the disease dengue, which is very prevalent in South America, Central America, Asia, the Middle East, Africa. What these scientists had decided to do was basically knock out the population of mosquitoes that were responsible for spreading this disease. There's a lot of controversy about wiping out a species, even as something as hated as a mosquito. They wanted to do it very selectively, not wipe out all mosquitoes because they're great pollinators. Birds like mosquitoes. They're a food source for spiders. But if you could give them a gene that would make the offspring of any matings with mosquitoes with that gene, if that made them sterile, you could basically crash the population. So that's what they were trying to do. It was an experiment funded by the Gates Foundation in Mexico on the Guatemala border. I had the opportunity to go down there and talk to the scientists, talk to the local community, because scientists in Western society have a terrible reputation for testing strategies on people in low-income countries. My reporting involved talking to the local community about letting this genetic experiment happen in their backyard. And it involved talking to researchers down there and also researchers in the U.S. for that story. 
That's an example of one of the magazine stories I did. That's really fascinating. Did it impact you adversely being a woman and a woman of color when you went to do this? Or do they not look at that at all? I think when it came to being in Mexico, I have sort of amorphous features that allow me to blend into many cultures. I think it was a help. I didn't look like a traditional reporter. People were very receptive and very open to me, which is a wonderful thing when you're telling a story. Tell us about the Vomit Comet. That sounds so interesting. Oh, God, that is ancient history. In the late 90s, I had the opportunity to go to Star City with a group of space entrepreneurs. These are the people that are now running companies like Space Adventures. I went because a friend of mine was one of those internet entrepreneurs. We had the opportunity to go to Star City, which is where Russian astronauts train for zero gravity environments. In the Vomit Comet, you do sort of a parabolic flight, which goes like this. So the plane goes up at a 45 degree angle, is stable for about a couple of seconds, and then goes down. During this downward portion, you're weightless for about 30 seconds. So you float around the plane. It was fantastic. I was the one person on that flight out of these group of guys that did not feel nauseous. That made me feel pretty cool. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Because that was my next question. Do people vomit actually? Yes, it is pretty nauseating. <laughs> people have bags on them. It's very confined. You're only weightless for 30 seconds at a time. A lot of the guys who did it had wimpy stomach. But what was scary was these are not modern planes. These are C-130s. They look like they could break down <laughs> any point. And then the parachutes on board, should the plane start to disintegrate or something, look like they haven't been opened in 50 years. And you're with a bunch of Russian trainers who don't speak any English. So you don't exactly feel safe doing this stuff in Russia. So vomiting is the least of the issues. Least of the issues. But it was really <laughs> exciting to go to Moscow and see Star City. Some of the guys got to go fly in MiGs. Oh. I did not do that. <laughs> We could keep on talking about these fascinating stories. Let's hear one more. What about the one about pigs like Mass General? The pig was basically a stand-in for a human. When you have a life-threatening injury like a gunshot or a war injury and you have massive blood loss, there is a very finite amount of time during which you can save that person. It's called the golden hour. Basically, what these surgeons were figuring out is when somebody sustains that sort of injury in the field or in an urban shooting or something, what can you do to their body to put them in a state of suspended animation such that they don't die? It was all done through very humane strategies and it was approved by institutional review boards and such. But the pig would be given a life-threatening injury and it would start to die. What they were doing with these pigs was cooling them down and putting them in a state of hypothermia, which slows down all the processes in your body, all the cellular processes. And it gets them into this state where there's not a lot of bad chemistry going on. They can hold you in this state until they can get you to a medical facility and stitch you up and fix your injuries. I was watching the very early research where they were testing this on pigs. That was really exciting. <laughs>
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. I can see why narrative science writing is just up your alley because you make it sound so interesting and easy to understand while we still learn something new. That brings me to Breath from Salt because we need to discuss that. And full disclosure, I have to tell our listeners that Bijal is actually a cousin. And so I do know that she has been trying to birth this baby for how many years now, Bijal? It's eight years. Eight years. She's had a long gestation period with this baby yes. and battling dyslexia too. And mic drop, Bill Gates has recommended it as one of his top picks for the year. Bijal, take us through this journey. What were the highlights and what were the lowlights of writing this book? And how did Bill Gates recommend it? The shout out was amazing to have Bill Gates spend that much time reading my book and writing a really long review. He is a god when it comes to global health and I think he recognized that this story was applicable to more diseases than just cystic fibrosis. I found out that I have been long listed for the Penn E. O. Wilson Science Writing Literary Award. So I'm thrilled. In terms of highlights, if you had told me in 2012 that I would spend eight years writing a book, I might not have chosen to do it. I started from scratch. I first had to get an agent once I had an agent, I had to write a proposal. Then I had to find a publisher. And I'd never done this before. I had books on how to get an agent, then a book on how to write a proposal. But it took me a little bit of time to get geared up to do the writing. The story began with a story for Discover Magazine, which was an article. That turned out to be 10 pages. And that was when I realized this had to be a book. When that happened, I got the agent, I got the proposal, I got the publisher. And then the science started happening so quickly. When I first started on this book, there was one drug, and it was just for 4% of patients who had cystic fibrosis, which in itself is a rare disease. And then a couple of years later, there was rumor of another drug. And these drugs are designed to match your DNA. So what I was watching as I was writing this book was the beginning of personalized medicine, drugs that matched an individual's genetic mutation. That blew my mind. Drug number two helped 50% of the patients with this disease. And then I heard rumors from the scientists and the community that there was another drug in the works. Initially, this was a book about a tale of hope one little personalized medicine helping a few patients. Now they could nail this whole disease. 
My publisher, Ben Bella Press, trusted me and said, all right, you're watching the science. I kept watching and writing and reporting. By the end of last year, there were drugs for 90% of patients with this disease. This is the first disease that has been treated with personalized medicines in the history of medicine. And it's a genetic disease passed down from generation to generation. The story was just so big. Every time I thought I was towards a closing point, there would be a scientific development and I would want to include it. And I had the opportunity to talk to patients in these clinical trials. For example, one of the first families I interviewed for the book, the girls were like nine and 11, and they were scrawny, skinny, trademark cystic fibrosis physique. After taking these drugs for a few years, these girls were strong and robust. They hadn't been sick in months. I watched them grow. I watched them thrive and just blossom as a result of these drugs. And I saw this multiple times from different patients. So it didn't feel like eight years, except on particularly bad days. It was such a wild ride because of the science being so exciting the community being very open and accepting and welcoming to me as I tried to do my reporting. I did read the book. You've done a phenomenal job with it. And this wild ride you're talking about, I felt it. I was like, oh my God, which scientist is going to win the race? The whole process of funding and which pharmaceutical company is going to make the vaccine and who's going to get authorized first. It was like a real thriller and then all's well kind of a feeling at the end. Thank you. They are not done. There are still 10% of people for whom these drugs don't work. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is still working to develop a whole new field of medicine to help these last 10%. That style of medicine will be applicable to many other diseases, which is so, so exciting. This one little rare disease is making breakthroughs that are going to help the health of billions of people on the planet. What other kind of disease would you think you'd like to pick? The only part of my life where I'm not scientific is when I'm deciding projects and I'm superstitious. <laughs> I'm thinking about a lot of different genetic diseases that affect a much broader swath of humanity, as well as continuing to follow cystic fibrosis, because there's a lot more work to be done there. The science that they have fostered has been so revolutionary. I'll be covering that front as well. Human genetics is something that you would have liked to follow. So this kind of is along that same track. I visualize everything in cartoon form in my brain. When I'm reading science, I'm thinking in pictures. Here's the cell and here's a molecule coming in and out of it. And the DNA is doing this. I have a very visual brain. Thinking about those sort of diseases and what's happening in biology and the cell, it's my niche. That's what I feel good at. How did dyslexia impair or help you along? It wasn't diagnosed till I was on the verge of applying for graduate school. It had always been a frustrating thing to me. I read more slowly. I took tests more slowly. Information that could be delivered visually, I picked up very quickly. And that was the case for biology and chemistry. So that is probably a big factor in pursuing the medical sciences, the life sciences. As a daughter of South Asian immigrants, did you have a lot of parental aspirations? My parents saw that I was interested and fascinated in science. It's a pretty traditional. It's a lot of South Asians pursue the sciences. 
if you're uh, not an engineer or a doctor or a scientist, I mean, what are you going to do? So I had always followed the science track. My parents were mildly perturbed when I first told them that I wanted to do journalism, but I gave it a good sell. I also told them that I wasn't just going to start writing for a newspaper. I would go to a program because I had no one in my family who was a journalist. So I went to the program at NYU and that gave me a gentle easing into the field of journalism. Soon after I was in the program, I began doing a few pieces for The Economist. My dad's an econometrician. That probably gave them a little bit of faith that I wasn't completely nuts and I wouldn't fail. They've always been very encouraging. So that was terrific. And they understood that because it was science writing, I was using everything that I had learned to that point. I was just expressing it differently. You expressed it very differently when you picked somebody who was not from your community. How encouraging were your parents when you went ahead and did that? (laughs) I've only gone to India as a visitor, basically. And I always am with family, immersed in the culture when I get there. But I have grown up in other countries. And so I don't know how much my parents expected me to marry an Indian. They were open to the fact that I might not choose that way. But I did, in a way, choose within my community because I married another science journalist, a Jewish science journalist from New Jersey. I did marry somebody in my same mental space, just not my same cultural space. I remember being at your wedding and some of the traditions, it's almost like he's an Indian, right? He blends into cultures very easily. And you're right, there's a lot of similarities between Hinduism and Judaism. We constantly discover them together. My parents never completely thought I would marry an Indian. I guess they pegged me right that way. Did they even think you'd marry? They doubted at a point that I would even get married. So I think perhaps by the time I did, they were just happy. I was never really pressured to get married. It was more some of my aunts and uncles that were laying on the, wow, you're getting close to 30. You're about to expire like a carton of old milk. (laughs) When we talk about cultural similarities, are there cultural differences also between you and your spouse? What kind of adjustments have you needed to make? There are many cultural differences, but there's a huge emphasis on the family, education, spirituality, and not just in the religious way. Being a good person within your community is very important in Judaism. One of the personally difficult decisions for me was when your children are growing up, do you raise them Jewish? Do you raise them Hindu? I regard myself as culturally Indian, but I'm not a very religious person. My faith is science (laughs) in a big way. Initially, choosing to send the kids to Jewish school on Sundays to prepare for their bar and bat mitzvah was hard for me because I felt like it was pulling them away from my culture. It wasn't until I learned more about Judaism and the customs that I understood that that training they were receiving was more to become just good human beings. It would give them an understanding of Judaism, what it means to be a Jew, and how to treat other people well, how to take a position of leadership in the community. There wasn't a tradition, an idea that I didn't agree with. Hinduism, at its root, embraces other religions. Everybody follow their own path. And the best way to be a good Hindu is to just let my children learn. There are times where I have felt a little left out because it's not my culture, but it's also not a culture that excludes me. 
it makes sense because Hinduism at the end of the day is really not a religion. It's about how to live life. You did give your children Indian names. I wanted to put my stamp on them. (laughs) (laughs) I figured that they were getting a Jewish surname and I would brand them with an Indian first and middle name. Also because I think one of the wonderful things about Indian names is they have so much meaning. I wanted to match my child's face with what I saw in them. I grabbed ownership of those first two names. They are children of two cultures. Their names should reflect that. So that was important to me. Something very important that parents who have children in this country also look at is everybody should be able to pronounce the name. Was that even a thought in your head? Yeah, it was a consideration because there are some names that can be corrupted in ways that are very distasteful. We deliberately veered away from those. What was the most challenging thing as a mother of biracial children? One of the biggest challenges is trying to work throughout motherhood and continue professional development and achieve the goals that I had set out for myself while having two small kids. Every single mother in this country faces working and doing the juggling with the kids. Fortunately, as a journalist, my schedule is pretty flexible. So that has certainly helped. They're good kids. I haven't had that many challenges other than the work-life balance. What do you do to try and emphasize their South Asian heritage? It's probably through reading. And I hate to say this, but it's a lot of eating. Their tastes are very Indian. So a lot of culture is experienced through eating, reading stories of the culture, festivals. It's all very celebratory. Anything from your immigrant experience that you wish your kids could have experienced? Something from your time as a child in Australia and the UK and growing up in the US? And is there something you're glad they never encountered? There's plenty of things I'm glad they never encountered. When we moved to Australia, it was in the early 70s. It was a pretty racist place. They had just removed the white Australia policy the year before we arrived there. So it was not a brown-friendly place, to be (laughs) completely blunt about it. My parents experienced racism. I experienced a lot of racism at the school. There were only two non-white children at my elementary school. Children would throw rocks on the way back from school and holler really racist stuff. Is it one of the things that made you want to leave? We were moving for many reasons. That was a big one. My dad got a professorship in this country, but I was also excited to go to college in America. I was excited to study science. And immediately when I got to the high school, it was nice to see African-Americans, more Asians. We were in Indiana, so it wasn't nearly as diverse, but I was happy to move here. I have not enjoyed the politics in this country in the last four years, but I'm glad my children are aware of Black Lives Matter, Brown Lives Matter. They're just seeing a side of this country that maybe wasn't so obvious to me when I moved here. They may not be a direct recipient of that behavior or that attitude, but they know it's around. So maybe they understand a little more where I come from. In your immigrant experience of moving around, was there anything positive that you wish your children could have been exposed to? I wish they had been able to go to more countries. You get a certain resiliency from living in multiple countries. They visited 
but they've never lived. I wish it were the case that it was easy for my husband and I to just pick up, go to another country for, say, six months or a year and bring the kids with us. There are very adaptable families and parents that do that. We're just just not those. Is there anything unique in the way you raise your children? I know my husband would accuse me of being a tiger mom. So I think that's pretty stereotypical. How can you not be? I don't know how not to be competitive and how not to push, (laughs) frankly. They're also growing up in D.C. They get a lot of opportunities here. They see a lot. They do a lot. And even though they haven't lived in multiple countries for extended periods of time, I think they have a pretty cosmopolitan mindset. And do you or your husband involve them in any of your research work or take them on field trips? Have they had any of these exciting experiences that you face? I don't know whether they would classify my reporting and research as exciting. My husband is a producer and writer for National Geographic, so they would much rather go on his expeditions. Your brain's constantly whirring. What do you do to relax? I don't relax. I don't have time. And I think a lot of the characters I met when reporting for this book, I can see what happens when you don't relax. You get a lot done. You can achieve a lot. I think I'm even less likely to relax in the future. I get bored incredibly easily. That's not to say I wouldn't like to do some traveling to other countries. I would love to go to Botswana and look at animals. That's what I would love to do to relax, but... I've been to Botswana. It's... it's, I know you have. It's the best safari (laughs) ever. We do go to a lot of national parks in the U.S. That's something that all four of us enjoy and we can enjoy with the grandparents. We have an intense love of nature. If there's one tip that you could share with our listeners on work ethic, especially somebody with dyslexia, what would that be? You can't let that sort of thing stop you from doing what you really like. If someone had said to me, you're dyslexic, you shouldn't go into book writing, that would not have been a good thing to tell me. There are a lot of tools now, a lot of alternative ways of learning and reading and writing that are available now that weren't available a couple of decades ago. But I don't think people should be discouraged. If you're passionate about something, then you should just go for it. I'm not advocating going out yonder and writing on your laptop and (laughs) not being able to support yourself. You got to support yourself. And it's not an impediment. In many ways, it could be a better way and a different way of seeing things. I have a rapid fire round for you. Australia or the US? US. Hanukkah or Diwali? Diwali. Favorite beverage? Gin and tonic and tea. I need both. (laughs) Bill Gates or Steve Jobs? Bill Gates. (laughs) Paella or biryani? Biryani. Mountain or beach? Beach. Uh, Biking or walking? Walking. New York or DC? New York. Favorite TV show? Breaking Bad. It's good to see a scientist as the main character. (laughs) Favorite music band? Bon Jovi. Night person or morning one? Morning writer, night partier. I like that answer. Bijal, it's been a scintillating conversation. 
Thank you so much for this amazing insight. For our listeners, you can follow Ake Women on our social media handle at Ake Women Global on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Tune in again for yet more fascinating podcasts with South Asian women. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>